Welcome to the Business of Psychology podcast, the show that helps you to reach more people, help more people, and build the life you want to live by doing more than therapy. Before we get started today, I've got a bit of a favour to ask you. So we're planning some summer workshops at the moment for um, members of the Do Modern Therapy wider community. So everybody listening to this podcast and I'm trying to work out what's going to be most useful for you guys. So there's two workshops that we're thinking of running over the summer and they're both going to be completely free and open to everybody. Um, So the first one is a repeat of our Find Your Specialism training because we get such great feedback from that and lots of people contacted me last time saying they'd missed it and they really wanted to attend. So I thought we might run that one again. And the other one that we're thinking of running is the 50-minute business plan, which is a new training where I'll take you through the key components of a useful business plan and help you to start to create or update yours in 50 minutes. Um, but I'm not sure what you guys want. So I've put a poll on the Do Modern Therapy page on Facebook. And if you could just hop over there and tap which option would suit you best, that would really help me make a decision because uh, I'm kind of trapped in uncertainty at the moment. So I'd really appreciate it if you could just vote in that poll and let me know uh, which training is going to be most useful for you this summer. I'll probably put it on over a couple of different dates in July and August to try and catch everybody in between summer holidays. Um, and it's just something we're doing really because we're aware that the next round of Psychology Business School isn't starting until September and there are lots of people who will be wanting to launch their private practice or give their private practice a bit more attention in September and might be really wanting to get started. So yes, please do. After you finish listening to this episode, of course, hop on over to the Do Modern Therapy page and just let me know your preferences in that poll. Or if you've got a better idea, um, I'll leave the option open so that you can add your idea into the poll as well, because I'd love to know what you guys would benefit the most from. Okay, so let's get on with today's show. Today, I'm talking to Dr. Dave Lee about his specialism, a topic that's central to all of our lives, but rarely gets the therapeutic attention that it deserves, sleep. So I'm really excited to talk to Dave today because I think his career and what he achieves through his practice show the value of specializing for both our clients and our own fulfillment. So I'm gonna start by asking Dave some questions about how he developed his business to the point that it's at now. And then we're gonna get into his specialist subjects, how we should deal with sleep difficulties when we recognize them in our clients. So welcome to the podcast, Dave. Thanks, Rosie, nice to be here. Thanks for inviting me in. So can you say a little bit about who you are and who you help? So I'm Dave Lee, I'm Clinical Director at Sleep Unlimited. We're a team of around 15 uh, health professionals and a bit of office support staff as well. Um, We take a multidisciplinary approach to managing sleep problems. So we have a lot of psychologists, assistant psychologists, clinical psychologists and physiologists as well. dealing with the whole range of sleep problems across the lifespan. So we'll, um, we'll work with newborns, parents, uh, children, um, teenagers, adults, older adults. Um, my particular clinical specialism is working with people who've had brain injury. Um, so we do a lot of, of medical legal work with um, about 65% adults, mostly who've had road traffic accidents or falls, and about 35% paediatric clients who... Um, maybe you've experienced birth trauma. 
mm. and sometimes accidents as well. Um, so that's so that's where I specialise. But but our broader team will work with anybody who's got a sleep problem and and liaise with other health professionals who might be working with them as well. So where did your passion for helping people with sleep come from? Uh, all way more by luck than judgment I would say as life goes we fall into things um, I started out as an engineer and hated it and quit my engineering degree because I wanted to do something more fulfilling um, and rewarding and, and helping other people out um, I found the engineering quite faceless my first real interest in sleep was peaked when I was about nine years old I went to play with a friend down the road and he brought me into his house and stuck on Jaws, the uh, the, uh, the, the shark film. Oh, and no. <laughs> I, was too, I was a bit too young to probably see that. Um, and there's a couple of sort of key moments in it. And one, I don't know if you remember the film, but um, I'm sure some of, some of your listeners will. There's a, there's a scene with a submerged boat and a hatch open falls open and this this dismembered head floats out and uh, of this hatch. Oh, that's so scary. Um, and I was traumatized by this. And, and then I experienced uh, bad dreams about I was reliving that for, for a couple of weeks. Um, and, and we see that a lot with trauma, the nightmares, core diagnostic feature of, of PTSD. Um, so I was getting up, sleepwalking, agitated. I was getting into the bath and turning the taps on in my pajamas. So there was something going on with water and relating to the film. I'm sure that was all linked up. And my mum would, my dad, find me in, in the bathroom, agitated in the bath, water running, still asleep. And my mum started getting me to count from one to ten. And that calmed me down and she'd dry me off, put me back to bed. That worked for a few nights and it stopped working. And I was still agitated and nightmare walking, sleepwalking. So she then started getting me counting backwards from 10 to one. And that worked for a few nights. And then that stopped working. And then she got in me counting from one to 10 in French. And that worked for a few nights. Gosh, you were a clever nine-year-old. Well, I don't I was doing numbers <laughs> in French at school. And um, I'll come back to that point. It's a really interesting point though. And then that stopped working. And then she got me counting backwards in French from 10 to one. And then after about two weeks of, of going through that process, the, the nightmares abated. I'd obviously processed the, the trauma and no more sleepwalking, no more nightmares. And, and I, I always found that fascinating as I was growing up and still do that, that actually what I was doing was a really quite cognitively demanding task whilst asleep. And I've got, I have no memory of this in the mornings. And, and that's a real feature of the parasomnias generally and nightmares are very common parasomnia, everyone's had a bad dream, um, that we're amnestic often for, for what we've been doing whilst we've been sleepwalking, sleep talking. We don't remember. Oh, do you remember talking about the Taj Mahal in your dreams last night? No, I don't remember that. So, so amnesia for that, for that is, 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 is very common. And, and I, I find that fascinating that I was not consciously aware. I have no memory. I didn't encode that in any way. I couldn't recall that in the morning. Yet I was doing a really cognitively demanding task whilst asleep and I still find that a fascinating thing um, and that's still interesting excites me 35 years later um, so that's so I think where my interest was peaked and I was lucky because I, I, I messed up my engineering degree at Loughborough University um, but Loughborough had a an internationally renowned sleep research center attached to it. And then when I went back and I, I, I paid my way through my human biology degree, uh, when I decided I wanted to go back and retrain, um, 
I was in the human sciences department. Human biology was very linked with psychology. I, I did quite a lot of psychological modules on my undergrad biology degree. And that then opened the door for me to do a PhD in the sleep research center there. So that's what brought me into that. And it was, as I say, more by luck than judgment, a right place, right time, interested, ended up being qualified enough to get on and do that. Um, and then did a, in, embarked on a five-year clinical sleep psychology PhD, which has brought me into the world of, of psychology. And um, although I trained as a biologist, I'm now a chartered psychologist and chartered scientist. So, and I, and I work very much in the psychological domain now. Um, even though sleep's a very biological thing too. It's a really interesting phenomenon that crosses biology, psychology, sociology, economics. It, it touches across all the whole range of our, of our experience, not just personally, but as a society as well. Absolutely. And I'm sure we'll come more on to this because I was thinking um, as you were speaking, you know, everything that we work with increasingly the more that we understand it the more it seems ridiculous to separate the mind from the body and we we know that we can't separate people from their context mm-hmm. um so I, I yeah I, i'm interested in sort of the pattern of of difficulties with sleep over the past few years you know are, are you seeing a rise at the moment yeah yeah and there's been some survey data that came out um in the autumn last year so looking at sleep issues in the in the within the first lockdown period since the, since March the 23rd um last year um we've seen a doubling of sleep problems in in the UK um across the developed world we'd normally ex- prior to March t- last year we would have we'd expect to see one in four people experiencing some sort of sleep problem at, at, a, at a clinical level and we've seen that double in the last year because of um, increased anxiety obviously and anxious people tend not to sleep well and we've seen a lot more anxiety around for obvious reasons changed routines routines that people may well have been in for decades getting up at the same time going to work the same route all of a sudden that changed overnight and that's a stressor as well we've seen people struggling more with striking the work-life balance because they've had to bring work home and work from home which they might not have had to done before and, maybe, and some of them are even working in their bedrooms. So now the bed and the bedroom is not necessarily just a place for sleep. It's also worrying about work and stuff as well. And the fourth factor is um, 25% of people have admitted to drinking more alcohol during the lockdowns. And we'd expect that number to be higher because if you ask people how much they drink, they tend to not tell you the truth. So we'd expect that to, to be higher than that. So because of those four reasons, we've now seen a doubling of sleep problems in a very short space of time. The stress is ongoing. We've got a lot of people now who maybe are not working as much as they were before, the redundancies being furloughed, struggling to get back to work, certain industry sectors like hospitality really struggling. Um, and we've also got a, a large cohort of people now who are living with symptoms of long COVID. And that is an interesting newish area. Um, we've had post-viral syndrome for, forever. Um, and and you, you, get, you get the flus, a proportion of people who get the flu will experience post-viral syndrome afterwards. And I say, essentially that's what long COVID is. It's post-viral syndrome. And fatigue is your number one symptom of post-viral syndrome and long COVID, same thing. So we're going to, because so many people have, have had this nasty virus, we're, we're going to see a, a large number of people living with 
post-viral syndrome, long COVID. And I think there's definitely things that we can do behaviorally and psychologically around sleep that will improve those symptoms for people. Um, I've got some ideas about that because I, there's, there's some links between our immune system, our sleep, exposure to bright light, these sorts of things. So I could talk about that if, if people are interested, if you, if you want to dig into that. Um, but I think there's definitely something that we need to be doing more of, focusing on sleep, especially now because of the doubling and also managing the longer term stress and post-viral long COVID symptoms. There's a lot, I think, that's the, that the sleep world can offer there. Um, if you can find someone to deliver it. Mm, and that seems yeah. to be the issue. So we'll, we'll definitely come on to yeah. that because I'm expecting by the end of this podcast, a lot of us are going to be going off and wanting to get trained. Um, but I'll, I'll leave that for a bit <laughs> a bit further yeah. on, if that's okay. Yeah. Um, because I'm just really interested in whether you ever had any reticence about specialising in such a tight area because it sounds like you know you go from being doing quite a broad undergraduate degree to specialising at doctorate level really quite early on how did that feel at the time? Oh interesting exciting an opportunity I was probably in one of the best places in the world at the time the Loughborough Sleep Research Centre under Jim Horn um, who set that up in the 1980s I mean, Jim's probably one of the most preeminent psychophysiologists in the world. I mean, he's, re he's retired now, but uh, um, he really put Loughborough on the map. Um, and and when I was going through there doing my PhD, it was, it, it was he was still very active, and it was still probably quite at it, at its peak then. And he, since he's retired, things have slowed down a bit at Loughborough, but uh, um, it was a great place to be, um, and it was it was um, sort of inspiring and nurturing and got me engaged and 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 also I mean in terms of being really specific and like I was talking about earlier on with it with the, my childhood experience of that of the jaws the nightmares I still find that fascinating and that's never left me and I don't think it ever will um so to have the opportunity to do something in an area which was really exciting in a place which was really well supported and really well recognized as being a decent decent um place to do that sort of work was it was a really good opportunity um too good to say no to and 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 good to be able to specialize in a niche area so um I don't have any competition really there's only a few of me around so so that gives me an, and and uh, I, I you know as the years have gone on I, mean, I think post PhD I've really learned this stuff because I you, you have the, the pressures of that project finished and then you can start thinking more broadly about it so the PhD was very much geriatric clinical population but as time's gone on I've worked more and more with more adult and then children and more vulnerable groups and and being able to spread that out and see where there's commonalities and where there's differences and how different approaches for different client groups and how we tweak it how we make it better that's been my work subsequent to finishing the PhD in 2005 so it's 15 years of thinking about how do we make this better? What are the issues? What are the core things that we need to do? How do we tweak it, all that? So um, that's keeping me engaged and delivering more training. And if you really wanna learn about something, teach it. And, and that's what I've been doing for the last 15 years, going around teaching health professionals, psychologists mostly, but a lot of other allied health professionals as well. Um, and that's been really interesting because you'll meet people from these. Well, how do you apply that to people with multiple sclerosis or, or children with cerebral palsy? And that gets me thinking and gets me back into the literature. And 
and, and then gets the opportunity to write a book about it where I really then had to get my academic hat back on and get right back into the literature. And my God, did I learn so much more when I did that. Um, so it's an ongoing process and I, I know, you know, no one knows everything about everything, but I'd, I'd like to think that I'm getting, getting better as time goes on, getting more and more information in my head, trying to keep up to date with stuff. Um, but really learning loads from interacting with in training uh, and, and, and having that experience has been really, really great. Yeah. I just think that's such a great example because I, I run this workshop um, kind of every three months or so. We aim to do it three times a year, which is it's a free workshop that helps people to figure out what their specialism should be. Because I'm a really big believer, that especially if you're in independent practice, you've got to develop a specialism or you'll kind of go nuts <laughs> Yeah. Because, because we want that level of, of being on top of the literature. We want to be diving deep and making sure that we're providing the best that we can for our clients. Yeah. And I just don't believe that you can do that, that you can sustain that quality across a huge sure. range of, of difficulties. But what I'm hearing from you and, and this is, you know what I've heard from lots of people that I've interviewed on this podcast who've got a, a specialism is that yeah you have your special subject but you're not limited to one client group and that changes and evolves and you find new people to help with your expertise as your career progresses yeah yeah absolutely I'm, I'm much broader now than I was before but but also in terms of building the team it's, it's recruiting people with with that the their own expertise. So we, we've got five clinical psychologists who work work on our team, and you know, one specialises in pain. One's a neuropsych works with me on the on the medical legal, um, brain injured client group that we we work with. With another one who specialises in children, more general adult as well. So it's having that that breadth of experience because you can't know everything about everything. So to, to, to have a specialism and then being able to drill in and say, well, so you're the go-to person for that particular issue with that particular client group, that, 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 would, be, that would be great for people to be able to, to do that more. But also we need to network and know about each other. Ah, oh, Rosie knows about this. Well, you talk, you, you're, you're that person, you talk to Rosie. Uh, Dave knows about this, you're that person, talk to Dave. Um, so we need to know about each other as well in order to make that work, I think. I completely agree. And it's part of the reason the Dean Morton Therapy Group exists. Because, you know, if we know about your book, for example, if you plug that, we've got a um, thread where you can plug things like books and online courses and training and that kind of thing. <laughs> but people won't be able to see the video, but I will link to the book. <laughs> it's called Teaching the World to Sleep. It's on Amazon. Yes. And we'll all be reading it, I think. Um, but if people know about that, that's like a business card that sticks in your head. So then that's how we build up those networks in our minds, I think, of, you know, who's the right person to refer to, because we can't develop every specialism. We can't we can't become experts in everything. There'll be some of us where, you know, our focus is so tight on something like EMDR, for example, that it wouldn't make sense to add sleep interventions into our toolkit. But if we know somebody who's got those skills, then the client can still get the best experience. So I couldn't agree more. Aha, interesting you mentioned that because EMDR is massively linked to sleep. Yes, yeah, I was going to ask you about that. I wasn't sure if I was going to ask you on or off air, but I'll ask you on air now. Can you talk a little bit about the link? Right, so EMDR, essentially the process, bilateral stimulation, hold in mind the traumatic event. You don't forget the event, but your emotional attachment to it depotentiates. 
by bilaterally stimulating whilst holding in mind the traumatic event. And you can bilaterally stimulate with eye movement or touch or sound. Now, when we're in REM sleep, at a certain stage of sleep called rapid eye movement sleep, and most, I'm sure you've all heard of that, um, our amygdala, our limbic system is highly activated in REM. So if you wake up from REM during the middle of the night, it's quite normal to be particularly wound up, worried, anxious about stuff because you're limbically activated. And our REM dreams are highly emotional because of that limbic activation. So I can be really passionate, violent, expressive in my REM dreams way more than I would be in my waking life. And we think that's about emotional reprocessing and venting. I can safely scream in my boss's face in my dreams, but I'm not going to do that when I'm awake because I'll get fired. So and, and, and what's happening in, in, in REM, we're, we're holding in mind the traumatic event, the, the nightmare, maybe, and our eyes are flicking left and right. We're bilaterally stimulating ourselves. So are we not doing EMDR on ourselves every night mm. to process the stress of life? Because life is stressful. We get cut up on the motorway. We have a pandemic to deal with. We worry about our kids and our finances. Though day-to-day stress is, is part of life. And REM, we think, is a, a natural EMDR process that we do, as we've evolved to do, to process the trauma of the day before so that we wake up the next day having depotentiated that trauma so we now can approach Tuesday in a functional way. So I think there's a huge link between EMDR and and, and and if our trauma is too great during the day, we've experienced too much insult from whatever that might be then maybe REM sleep's not enough for us so actually we can do a top that up and what this is what we think EMDR is this is like a waking REM proxy that that we do on ourselves so you can you can do this you can get a little bit of extra REM if you like by going and seeing an EMDR therapist that is very much the way our clients talk about it as well you know I think how many times as an EMDR therapist do you hear God, I slept 14 hours last night and that's never happened to me before in my life. You hear that a lot in, in recovery. People, I need more sleep now to process all of that. All the time. Yeah. The and time. also the other thing that's quite interesting with EMDR is quite often during the process, odd things will just pop up out of left field in people. But where's that come from? Which is very dreamlike. Mm. You know, your dreams can be quite random and odd things can just pop up. So it really does feel like they're very similar processes going on with REM and with EMDR. Yeah, it's just fascinating. And I'm sure all the EMDR therapists listening are like, talk more about this. <laughs> and for anyone who doesn't do EMDR, I will move on. But we can uh, we can maybe dive into this at another time. It's very, very interesting. So, you know, thinking you know, we've touched on this sleep, it, it touches every client group that we work with and and yet I think a lot of the time and I I don't think this is just me I think this is true hopefully for a lot of people but we kind of take this kind of oh I'll work with the rest of the difficulties I'll work with the low mood and the anxiety and just kind of hope that that will have an impact on sleep and actually often does but but why do we spend so little time do you think training and learning about how to intervene with sleep directly I suppose a couple of things to say about this. Um, number one, who owns a sleep problem? Is it a nurse job or an OT job or a physio or a psychology or a GP? You know, if you've got a sleep problem, who do you see? Who gets trained in it? It's not a core feature of any undergrad degree course. Um, a medical five-year medical degree 
in training um, though those students will probably spend five or six hours on sleep and that's all the neurobiological bit not how to fix it when it goes wrong yet most people with a sleep problem will present to their gp and they have very little training in how to deal with and deliver nice recommended evidence-based behavioral sleep medicine which is cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia cbti that's what we should be doing but they're not trained in it and they don't know anyone else is trained in it because no one discipline has said yes we'll own that we'll stick that on the as a core module on the undergrad OT course. So now you've got a sleep problem. OTs are trained in dealing with that. Go and see them for CBTI. We haven't got to that point yet. So no one owns a sleep problem it, it, from a healthcare professional's perspective. So that leaves the punter in the street with the sleep problem scrabbling around to know where to go or the GP scrabbling around knowing where to refer them to. So they end up with second line treatment approaches, which is the tablets which we have got a huge range of of issues in terms of um tolerance uh, hangover effects dependency and also cognitive impairment and, and confusion befuddlement because we're still doped up because of long half-lives the next day so the, the the sleeping tablets are very very ineffective um they, they cause more problems than they, they're worth. And, and you can take them for 25 years. As soon as you stop taking them, your sleep problem comes back. They don't work. They don't actually deal with the underlying issues, but CBTI does. So that's what we should be doing. We've just got an extreme paucity of trained people to deliver that. Mm. So, so I think that's the big obstacle really. And that, that's the, that's sort of my, my focus now is, is trying to spread the word about this and, and impress on the disciplines to train undergraduates in this in, in health in how to manage this because it doesn't really matter the cbti isn't particularly complicated you know any nurse physio ot gp psychologist could deliver this stuff it's not that difficult and um, we just need to raise awareness and get people trained in it mm, it's really interesting because i think i mentioned before we started recording that um i did do a cbt um, I guess probably CBTI informed group <laughs> in training um, for a, a, a group with chronic pain who were also struggling with sleep. Um, and I think the the difficulty for us as two trainees who are kind of tasked with, you know, take this book, read it and deliver this program as <laughs> will be familiar to many listeners. Uh, the, the problem was engagement and getting people to believe that it would work, you know, I heard time and time again, I can never come off these tablets. I, I never want to. I don't want to try. Um, scared of trying? Because, yeah, because the I guess it's maybe because the medical model is so entrenched. Um, or maybe it's to do with the beliefs that we're brought up with around, around sleep. Mm -hmm. What do you think is at the heart of that, you know, people's reluctance perhaps to engage with it's, it's It's twofold. We have a reactive health system in the West. We don't go to see our doctor until we're ill. And then we ask them to fix us. And we want them to type into their computer our symptoms, get a diagnosis out, and then take a, get, get a bottle of pills to deal with that, go home, eat the pills, and problem goes away that we like that we're used to that that's the medic western medical model it's reactive it's not like the eastern medical model it's in, in china you you pay your doctor all the time and then when you get ill you stop paying them because they failed you and they had it's their responsibility to put you right so they're much more proactive and, and we're seeing that c coming into our western health system now we have 
exercise for obesity and nutrition classes, smoking cessation classes, all this sort of stuff is becoming much more proactive because we've worked out, finally, the pennies dropped, that actually it saves a lot more money if you keep people well and stop them getting ill in the first place. But it doesn't fit with the traditional model. So Marjorie's got a sleep problem. She goes to see the doctor. She gets the tablets. She eats the tablets. They absolutely do what they say on the tin. If I give you 15, 20 milligrams of diazepam right now, you will be asleep in the next 15 minutes. It's highly effective medication, but it doesn't give you good quality sleep. And the underlying issue for the insomnia is still there. The trauma, the drinking too much caffeine, the staring at telly all day and not going outside and getting any natural daylight. Those behaviors are still going on because we haven't addressed them. So I think we've got that reactive medical model on, on the one hand, and then we've got this weird new thing called CBTI, which isn't new. It's been around for 45 years in various forms. It's evolved, but nobody really knows about it. And it's, oh, it's all psycho babble, mumbo jumbo. This is what you want to talk to me. And that's going to sort it out. A lot of, you know, lots of psychologists will meet that resistance all the time. But I think actually when you look at the data, and you see that CBT for insomnia, and there's a whole massive, but there's hundreds and hundreds of research studies demonstrating its efficacy across a whole range of client groups at about 70%. So seven out of 10 people who engage with CBTI will see benefit from it. So if you can go to people and say, look, these tablets are toxic, they're not really actually solving the problem for you, and you're going to be taking these for the rest of your life, and you want to mix them with alcohol and antihistamines, then you're going to be knackering your liver and your kidneys at the same time. Maybe, and, and oh look, here's this other thing, which is 70% effective, non-toxic, and will last you for the rest of your life. It's a no-brainer. So I think it's about education. It's about challenging the traditional approach. And the only way we'll do that is by teaching more people about this stuff, health professionals and the general public as well. Mm. It's a raising awareness that there is a very, very effective intervention for this, which is non-toxic and 70% effective is awesome. And a, a good drug will hit 30% of people, 30% of people it won't do very much for them. And 30% of people who consume that drug will, will have some negative side effects. Mm. The fact that CBTI hits 70% of people is, is, is fantastic. And, and the work that I've been doing in trying to tweak it and improve it and make it better, we're increasing that up into the 80s, which is brilliant. You know, so only 20% of people are not going to benefit from it. Well, why not? Well, they've got specific issues. They're the ones who need more help. They might have, say, sleep apnea where they're not breathing well at night. That is easily treatable if we know how to identify it, and it's really easy to identify, but nobody knows how to do it. So again, it's raising awareness, it's training, or they may be particularly traumatized, in which case they need psychological help in conjunction with, and we work multidisciplinary, disciplinarily, is that a word? I don't know, <laughs> probably. Uh, yeah, so that we can, you know, so you know, I will work with you and your client and you work with the trauma and we do some sleep stuff or we train you to do the sleep stuff so you can do, both at the same time and that will enhance your practice so we're in training we're we're, we're told we're, we're taught you don't work with someone if they come into your clinic and they're drunk or they're high on drugs because they're not going to be in the room with you mm. they need to be sober or straight before you can do that work and it's exactly the same with with sleep a full night of sleep deprivation you know is a bit pop psychology this but it's been it's been bandied around that it's equivalent to about eight pints of beer 
Oh, I believe it. I believe it. I once, um, my, my son didn't sleep. I think I mentioned before we started recording, he didn't sleep for a year. Mm. And, um, and my daughter was also a, a baby. So I was up all night. If he slept for a minute or two, I'd be grateful. Yeah. Um, and I remember having to drive to the hospital because he was also you know, poorly in, in lots of ways. Mm. And I couldn't figure out how to turn the car engine off. I yeah. should not have been driving. Oh, absolutely um, not. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. blooming dangerous. Yeah. And yes, I, 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 so I fully believe that. I don't, <laughs> don't need evidence to look to back on that now. Yeah, yeah. Really frightening. Um, it, and, it, and it is incredibly detrimental to our performance, you know, reaction time, concentration, attention, memory, all hugely impacted by sleep deprivation. So if Marjorie hasn't slept for three nights, well, you can't really do anything with her. You, you need to get them. We need people to be stable to work with them effectively. Um, so it's sobriety. It's not high on drugs, but it's also having had some sleep. And, and that's why we'd always you know, impress upon people to do sleep work, to help give people the, the energy and the resources and the motivation to work with you on the, on the harder stuff later you you can't bring marjorie in and she's not slept for three nights and then just go straight in and dig up her 30-year abuse history that's actually not ethical and she's going to go away and go oh that hurt i didn't like that and then she disappears and she, she comes out of services whereas if you do cbti stuff with her and get her sleeping a bit better which is straightforward stuff so two things then happen she's she's got the energy and the motivation and the resource and the memory capacity to engage with you effectively in therapy but also she loves you because you've sorted her sleep out which she's been struggling with for 30 years and what a fantastic way to build rapport and and get that therapeutic alliance going on so that's why we always argue do the sleep stuff early empower your client with more energy and motivation, but also use that as a process to build that therapeutic alliance, which is absolutely critical. Mm, and so often anyone... we, we spend a long time um, as trauma therapists resourcing clients. And actually, what better resource can you give a client than better sleep oh, and wow. to help them to deal with what's going to come next? Re it sounds really, really important. And it just blows my mind a little bit that we don't think about it more. <laughs> Because we're not trained in it. You see, it, it, it. Who owns the sleep problem? If psychology said, yeah, we, we own it from the 1980s, then, then you would have done it on your undergrad and you would have been trained more in it when you did your declin. We're but, not good at owning stuff, though. Because mm -hmm. I, I think, you know, yeah, listening, to, listening to you speak, I'm thinking, you know, I, I bet, and obviously you can tell me if I'm wrong, but I bet that clients, if you ran a group programme, I bet clients would show up to it. And I was thinking, hmm, they would show up for Dave's group. They didn't show up for mine. What would be the difference? And I think it's about that ownership and that confidence that comes with really being an expert in this subject. And because you obviously own it. Yeah, it's become my, my little corner of the world and I like it. And I don't have much competition because there's not many of me around there. So I'll hang on to it because it's... Yeah, it's my patch. I quite like that. But I'm do I'm also very passionate about sharing it. And and actually I don't think it does need me. I think that you could go and you could say, look, you, you could motivate people to engage with it by explaining how bad the drugs are and how good CBTI is. 70% effective, lasts you for the rest of your life. This is teach a man to fish, whereas the tablets is give a man a fish, and you just keep mm -hmm. doing that every night and it's disempowering. And it's toxic and side effects and they don't really improve people's sleep. And the underlying 
issues are still there. So I think you you have to be a salesman a bit. You've got to sell it to your clients. And if you can do a good job at that, then then they would engage more. Yeah. Mm. And I think that is the heart of the struggle for, for many of us. It, it's difficult to, to take that stance because there's actually there's not many things that we've got that sort of robust evidence about. Um, and so often I think we can be a bit more tentative in the way that we describe things, but actually possibly when they've been prescribed medication, that's not been done in a tentative way. Mm. So sometimes if we're trying to offset that medical model, then I think there's a strong argument for, yes, getting out your research statistics and saying, look, we've got this RCT, this shows 70%, actually over here they're getting 80%. I think if we were confident to do that, that would probably make a really big difference to how people engage with this stuff. Yeah, and it's not an RCT, it's hundreds of RCTs. Mm. You know, a, a meta-analysis of, uh, of 40 done in 1999 by Espy and, and Moran and Morton and Bysey, all the big names around the world did this big review in 1999 on 40 studies, and then they repeated it exactly the same way, systematic review in 2004 with 400 studies. And wow. 70% each time. And that is really the core reason why NHS, NICE, uh, National Institutes for Health in America, other health commissioning bodies around the developed world all now say CBTI is the way to go because of that repeated finding on a huge number of studies across a whole range of populations and client groups. You know, it really works. It really works because it's tapping into core neurobiological processes which exist in all of us, in, in our brainstem, our lizard brain. Um, and if those core processes weren't working, then the client would be dead. The fact that they're alive means that their heart's beating, they're breathing and they're sleeping because all that stuff is brainstem. So it's tapping into and optimizing those conditions which the brainstem likes to help to optimize the sleep experience, but then identifying all the obstacles which get in the way of that and getting rid of them. And essentially at its core, that's what CBTI is. And that's why it works with everybody, regardless of age, regardless of other presentations. You know, people in chronic pain, they still sleep. Mm, so that, that's what I was going to ask you, actually, because I know that there's a whole range of sleep disorders that people can be diagnosed with. Mm -hmm. um, and is it do you take the same approach to, to all of them? Can you talk a bit actually about what they are and, mm -hmm. and what sort of approaches you might take? There's loads. Um, and so, so for, you know, go back to DSM-4 cry, diagnostic criteria. I don't want to get into the, the DSM debate because I know that that's <laughs> And, and, I, and I do see the issues, but at the same time, sometimes it's useful to have a bit of a guide. But, but DSM-4, which was superseded by DSM-5 in May 2015, um, and DSM-5 criteria have expanded out. But essentially, you've got to have a problem with either getting to sleep, staying asleep, or waking up too early in the morning. It's got to happen three or more nights per week for at least a month. And it's got to cause you daytime dysfunction across psychological, sociological, occupational domains. You have to have some sort of daytime dysfunction. DSM-5 have broadened that out um, so you can feel fatigued, low energy, not a quantity or quality of sleep. Um, 
carers can provide testimony on behalf of a vulnerable other like children or older adults who lack capacity or people with brain injury who lack capacity, bedtime resistance in kids, problems with memory concentration. It's expanded out a little bit, but essentially that's what you're looking at is acute is less than a month, chronic is more than a month. You've got sleep initiation, DIS, difficulty initiating sleep. 40, 45% of insomniacs have that. They tend to be younger, not being able to switch off worrying about stuff 40 45 percent of people with insomnia have dms which is difficulty maintaining sleep they tend to be older um because of age-related changes in the brainstem their sleep is harder to initiate and we don't get the depth of sleep that we did when we were younger so it's more easily disturbed and we have age-related weakening of the sphincter muscles around the bladder so people get up more during the night to use the bathroom as they get older and 10 15 percent of people with insomnia have early morning awakening, EMA. So early morning awakening, 10 to 15% of people with insomnia have that. And that's often linked to alcohol dependency because alcohol dehydrates us as we eliminate it through the night and we'll wake up early dehydrated and not be able to get back to sleep. So they're, they're broad strokes, but we have, we have a range of others as well. So hypersomnia, people can oversleep. Uh, schedule insomnia, where you have uh, shift workers, uh, people pinching sleep for life during the week and trying to pay it back at the weekend. They're insomniac during the week, so they feel tired and horrible. Hypersomnia, oversleeping, when we, we've all done this, you, you oversleep at the weekend and, and catch up. Uh, how do you feel when you oversleep? Awful. Bizarrely, we feel awful, tired. Yeah. And I think sleep's unique in the sense that too much of it, hypersomnia, brings the same symptoms as not enough of it. So if you're pinching sleep for life during the week, you're insomniac and you feel awful. And then you oversleep at the weekend to pay it back. And then you're hypersomniac and you feel awful. You, you know, you have to get the right amount for you all the time to feel right. And there are certain conditions that are associated with hypersomnia. MS, ME, chronic fatigue syndrome, fibromyalgia, long COVID. Actually, maybe a lot. Of, and fatigue is core diagnostic feature of all of those conditions. And actually, that fatigue may be being driven by hypersomnia, not the condition itself. That's so, so interesting. So would that be yeah, kind yeah. of perceived wisdom about, um, you know, that you just feel like, oh, you're not feeling very well, go to bed. But actually, maybe that's really not helping some people. The, the, uh, the received wisdom commonly advice commonly given is, well, if you're feeling tired, sleep as much as you can. And actually, yeah. no. And we'd meet. We work with people with MSME who've been, you know, they're in their 60s and they're sleeping for 14 hours a day. Well, 14 hours a day, Marjorie, is appropriate for you if you're three months old. <laughs> Not if you're sick. You know, you shouldn't be sleeping for that long. You're almost certainly experiencing hypersomnia there. Um, then you've got a whole range of parasomnias. We talked about nightmares, sleepwalking, sleep talking. They're really common. But we also have sleep eating, sleep driving, sexomnia, where people engage in sexual activity in their sleep, sleep homicide. What? Uh, no, people have killed people in their sleep. There's a, you know, Kenneth Parks, 1993, drove about three miles in his sleep in his car, murdered his in-laws, drove home, woke up on his driveway covered in blood and thought, Ooh, I don't like the look of this. This is not my blood. Took himself to the police station. They brought him in and looked after him and went and found out what he'd done. And he was put on trial for murder. And because he fulfilled eight criteria, he was released um, and into a psychiatric hospital for a, about another year. Um, he, he 
was prescribed with sleeping medication because his sleep was very aberrant. Um, he's one of those unusual cases where sleeping medication is actually required. Um, and then he, EEG, he was demonstrated that his, his sleep architecture was stable and, and, and he was released, no longer deemed a threat to himself or other people. But he had childhood history of sleepwalking. Um, he had a current stressor. He'd just been made redundant from work. He had a good relationship with his in-laws. He didn't stand to gain anything by them dying. He was remorseful for what he'd done. He took himself to the police station. He had aberrant EEG at the time. Um, he had 22 blood relatives who also had parasomnia behaviours in their lives. And because of those criteria, he was acquitted. Wow. Um, because you can't be culpable for committing a crime if you're not conscious. If you're asleep, you're not conscious. It's referred to as an insane automatism, similar to diminished responsibility in um, DID, D dissociative identity disorders. You, you, you kill someone if you're dissociated, you're not culpable for that. You're not a murderer, that's manslaughter, that's a psychiatric presentation rather than a criminal uh, conviction that could be applied in that case. So that's that's the, the forensic sleep medicine side of things, which is, is quite interesting. So those are the parasomnias, and they're really common nightmares. Everyone's had a bad dream, and they and they go right through to really strange, unusual stuff. And sleep homicides, unfortunately, very, very rare. And you've got a load of dysomnia, so sleep apnea, restless leg syndrome, periodic limb movements in sleep, um, sleep apnea, narcolepsy. And we also now have uh, orthosomnia, which is our newest form of insomnia, which is a sleep problem that has been given to an otherwise healthy sleeper by their Fitbit freaking them out about their sleep. And or you know, other commercial sleep monitors are available, but oh, you know, this thing told me I woke up four times last night, or I only got 2% REM sleep, or I only slept for four hours. Panic, panic, panic. Um, and SB talks really eloquently about this if, if people want to get into his attention, intention, effort pathway. And it's all about good sleepers don't think about their sleep, they just shut up and go to sleep. Poor sleepers think about their sleep a lot. They try, they make effort. As soon as you try and make effort, your sleep becomes more elusive and it runs away from you. Um, you know, if I said to you, Rosie, if you're asleep in the next five minutes, I'll give you £3,000. Or if you're not asleep in the next five minutes, I'll come and shoot you. You ain't going to sleep. You're way too excited. You know, we have to depotentiate our physiological and psychological arousal to drop off to sleep and we do that every night and good sleepers do it without thinking about it poor sleepers require crutches aids counting sheep rolling three times that way lavender pillows blah 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 and none of that stuff works and has ever worked or will ever work because all it's doing is raising awareness and attention about sleep which is what bad sleepers do they just think about it all the time and then it gets worse. And that's exactly what these commercial sleep monitors are doing. They're just making people think about their sleep. And actually, good sleep needs nothing. Bad sleep gets everything. All the gadgets, gizmos, herbal remedies, and none of them work because they're just, just getting you wound up. So uh, we, we're seeing this a lot. A lot of people are using these monitors. It's, it's too much biofeedback. Mm. You, know, you don't think right now about your breathing or your heart rate but if I get you to just focus on your breathing and notice that it's getting a bit shallower and see feel that your your heart's breathing ah, 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 and that's a panic attack mm. it's too much higher cognitive stuff higher cortical stuff interfering with your lizard brain 
your lizard brain does your breathing, your heart, your sleep without you needing to do anything. Just don't worry about it. That will happen. But as soon as you start to think and worry, then we go up and we get more and more wound up. Oh, I'm a terrible sleeper. You can't help me. Yeah, I can. I just need you to stop worrying about it. easier said than done (laughs) therein lies the years of therapy yeah yeah, there's the (laughs) clinical skills for you so so uh, that was quite a long answer Rosie to it too but just a quick summary there there's a lot of different insomnia and that is the skill of us is to identify what the issues are and then that tells us how we intervene Terry is waking up in the night he's struggling to get off to sleep because he's drinking 15 pints of coffee a day it's a behavioural thing. Marjorie's got a 30-year abuse history. She's living with long COVID. She's got a broken hip and is in chronic pain. She's just been bereaved. She's going to need a very different approach. She's going to need a lot of time, a lot of effort. Terry just needs a quick slap nicely. Stop yeah. drinking the coffee. Oh, is it a stimulant? I didn't realise that. Yes, it is, oh, Terry. Yeah, Leave yeah. it alone after lunch and you'll probably sleep better. Two minutes. Marjorie needs 22 weeks or two years you know of therapy to 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 get through where, what she's been through so it, it, it's about and, and this is the departure that we've made in in our work taking the 70 percent effectiveness up to 80 is by doing a much more detailed assessment formulation process at the front so we know what the issues are for that client and then we cherry pick and give them what they need and not what they don't need so, so that that was that answers actually my next question was going to be so is it kind of like CBTI has a, a framework and you kind of use your formulation to navigate the person through that framework. So conventional CBTI is a six week program. Come across what I did programs anywhere else mm-hmm. all over the national hectic services, six week programs, exercise, smoking cessation classes, blah, blah, blah. Where does this magic number six come from? Don't know. No idea. No idea. All right. Um, old school CBT therapists um, back in the 70s, Aaron Beck um, and CBTI massively dominant. IAPT, psychological well-being practitioners, all CBT. Loads of other types of psychotherapy out there, which are great. But CBTI at the moment seems to be massively dominant. Sorry, CBT, massively dominant. Why? Because Beck measured it. Pearls didn't measure Gestalt like Beck did with the BAI and the BDI. So Beck could demonstrate improvement. And I think that was his genius. Mm-hmm. And then original CBT was not time limited. Then some bright spark in the 70s, 80s said, oh, look, we're getting most of the change in 12 weeks. So in the 80s, early 90s, CBT was a 12-week program. And then in the 90s, some bright spark came along and went, oh, look, we're getting most of the change in six weeks. And I think that's where your six comes from. Mm-hmm. I think that six-week session program is something the NHS understand. And that's why all these other models now fit into a six-week model and now we've got cbti conventional cbti is a six-week model it's not very c it's mostly bt that's how i remember it yeah yeah very very much so it's weak on the cognitive side and it's a six-week model and it was designed that way to sell it to health services because health services understand the three letters cbt more than they understand psychodynamic psychotherapy or other things like that and they understand the number six so how do we effectively sell this into health services we make it a six session model because the nhs understands the number six and we'll call it cbt for insomnia because the nhs understands those three letters but it's not that c it's more bt and marjorie with a 30-year abuse history needs way more than six sessions terry who drinks too much coffee needs five minutes Mm. so what we're doing is we're making a 
service it's a service-centered approach to try and fit it in logistically within the health service it's not a patient-centered approach and that i think is the issue the big issue with conventional cbti it's weak on the c it, it's six weeks why does that help terry or marjorie or does it help the managers in the nhs yeah and there's no real decent assessment at the beginning terry and marjorie both present with insomnia will you get six weeks of cbti well i'm sorry that's not appropriate for either of them so this is what we've been trying to do and this is how we push 70 up to 80 we're throwing the six sessions out of the window we, we if marjorie needs more c then we give that to her but we formulate and find out what the hell's going on first and then we give terry what he needs and not what he doesn't and we give marjorie what she needs and not what she doesn't which makes us more efficient as therapists we get a better experience delivering it the clients we work with get a more bespoke formulated approach which means they're more likely to comply with it because it's for them and compliance is everything and now we push up into the 80s by doing it in a more sophisticated patient-centered way so that's that's the journey that i've been on over the last 10 years is to take this fantastic i'm a big fan of cbti i think it's great but it's a bit crap how do we make it better and that's what i've been thinking about and that's what we've We've, we've got a second generation CBTI program, which we call our REST program. We're getting away from CBT because it's not. Um, it's about routine. It's about environmental stuff. It's about stimulation control, the kind of stuff we do in behavioral sense. And it's about psychology, mm. how we think and feel. But psychology, RESP, doesn't sound quite as good as REST. So we call the, we've got the T, we call it thinking. <laughs> to, to get our funky acronym in there so th so that's really what the book was about was about looking at the effective intervention that cbti is and smashing it apart and how do we make it better and detailing the assessment process in that so that we can then formulate and then design bespoke interventions for clients which improves their motivation and we get better results mm. i mean it just makes so much sense doesn't it it's such a shame i think a lot of people you know, myself included, when you've been forced into that six session CBT model, when, like I was saying, you know, you've been forced to do a six week group for lots of people that really had complex issues and needed something different from that, then it starts to get a bit of a bad reputation. And you start to think, oh, it, it gets a bad reputation with the client, but it gets a bad reputation with the health practitioner as well. Oh, absolutely. So many psychologists who I know who've, who've left the NHS, um, because of those constraints that are managerial or part of the business case, it, th that's not why they joined the NHS. They didn't join the NHS to help the business managers within it do their job better. They joined because they wanted to help people and they get frustrated by being um, co contained in, 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 and, and, and restricted in what they can do un under the auspices of the, of the institution. This is how we do it here. And, and, and actually, uh, we, we, we have done quite a bit of training. We do train a lot of NHS practitioners as well. And that, that's one of the issues that come up all the time. So, like, well, this sounds great, Dave, but I'm not sure how I'm going to be able to fit this in or make that fit. Um, whereas with the people who we train who are in private practice, they actually have a bit more liberty. And they think, well, I know actually, if I want to spend a week or two doing some sleep stuff with my client, well, I can. So... It, it's challenging and I, I do talk about this a lot as well and I don't want to sound too critical it, it's not 
we're, we're evolving here. We're, this isn't finished. Um, we're making mistakes. We'll, you know, we look back at the Bennett chairs and we used to restrain people and, and, and give them Valium and stuff. And we think, well, God, I mean, that was only 40 years ago. And we think, well, God, what the animals? Are? No, we still do ECT for Christ's sake. It's ridiculous. We'll look back in 50 years time and look at us now and think, oh, what animals were we? You know, it, we shouldn't be too hard on ourselves. This is part of an evolving process. But I think it's being cognizant of that and thinking, right, actually, maybe there's a way we can do this better rather than sitting on your laurels and saying, this is just how it's done here. Mm. Oh, challenge you on that all day long why <laughs> tell me why now could we not do this better let's think out of the box let's be a bit more sophisticated we've got the technology here it works let's make it better that, that's that's a, a, that's the passion that, that that drives me at the moment is that i want us to evolve out of a, a, a staid and stuck place and, and make things better for people with something which is fundamental improving sleep and something which actually is quite straightforward. CBTI is quite straightforward, really. So it's not a difficult thing to do. The frustration is the gap between the technology and the hundreds of thousands of people that need it. It's, it's filling that void. That's, that's, the, that's the mission, really. Um, so how could we... So somebody comes to me and they're presenting with a whole range of, of difficulties and sleep is one of those. What would be the signs that we should be intervening with sleep first before we get on with the other stuff? Well, pretty much everybody you see has got a sleep problem. So you're going to be intervening with sleep with all of them, really, in an ideal world. But if you're not trained to do that, you then think, well, I don't know how to do that. And I don't know anyone else who does that. So what we'll do is we'll, we'll forget about that because I can't do anything with that. And we'll just focus on other things. Now, that happens everywhere all the time. So we if, if you've got the skills to deal with the sleep stuff, then you can, then that is going to enhance your practice. So it's get skilled up in that stuff because you cannot find anybody with any sort of enduring physical or mental health problem who doesn't also have a sleep problem. Mm. So anything that you can do to improve someone's sleep is going to improve their life at least a little bit. And if you do that, they'll love you for it. And then they're more likely to engage with the rest of the stuff like we were talking about earlier. Mm. So, so I would absolutely front end it. And, um, and, and, you know, we do have the technology. There's information out there on, on how to do this. You, you talked about um, Colin Espy's Overcoming Insomnia book. You know, go and read this as a trainee and then set up a, a, a clinic and, and, and go and, and deliver it. And, and you, you struggle to get people on. Maybe you lacked a bit of confidence in marketing it or you didn't, weren't supported very well in that. <clears throat> and that was, that's great. And, and that's conventional CBTI back when Colin was doing his work later, 80s through the 90s. But it, it's better now. We, we can be more sophisticated with it. And, and it's not particularly complex. So you, you could train yourself up, you know, buy a more up-to-date book on the, on the subject and train yourself up or, or come on some, some training courses. And, uh, um, <clears throat> you know, that's, that's really what I want to be doing is training as many people as possible so that we can get this out as far and as wide because it's so ubiquitous. Mm, absolutely. So would there be times then when you'd really recommend that instead of trying to do it yourself, even if you've had a bit of training, but it's not it's not your specialist area, when when would you recommend that we refer on to, you know, somewhere like Sleep Unlimited yourself? So we, when we talk about this a lot in, 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 in our training, we do a two-part training process. The first day is a foundation day about the science of sleep and the different types of insomnia and how we might 
and, and an introduction to CBTI. And the second day is CBTI all the way through how you assess and treat using that as a model. And we go through our second generation REST program in that. We talk about where it's contraindicated and where you would refer on for other things. And we talk about a stepped care approach whereby at the bottom of the pyramid, you've got a large number of people with a low level of a problem. And the next level up, you've got a smaller population who are a bit more complicated. And after those, the two training days for health professionals, if you're trained, a trained health professional, you should be able to deal with those two levels, but also be able to identify the people who are more complicated, less of them further up the pyramid, and be able to then say, right, actually, these people are going to need more of a multidisciplinary approach. And that's out with my level of expertise as a nurse or an OT, I'm going to then refer on. So the idea is that we're delivering the training around to, to a lot of health professionals so they can deal with most people who are fairly straightforward, but also identify the ones that do need more help and knock up. Now the NHS do like a step care approach, you know, giving people what they need, not what they don't need, but being able to triage them into the right level of care. Um, so, so yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you're, if you're not confident and you think it's out with your comfort zone or your level of expertise or training, then it, you know, it's pick up the phones. Like, Dave, I've got this client. They look like this. What do you think? Oh, they, they're probably, well, try that. You'll probably be right. Or, whoa, whoa, stop, stop. That person needs to go and see a, a psychiatrist because they're acutely unwell. Stop. <laughs> um, but you know, most people would be able to do that anyway. We're, we're trained to identify and manage risk, aren't we? So, yeah. I mean, one of the things I was thinking, um, you mentioned sleep apnea earlier. Yeah. And obviously, that's, you know, an area which is totally out of a psychologist's expertise yeah and that's a, that's a contraindication so if we identify someone with sleep apnea they just get referred into a completely different treatment pathway you know that's respiratory medicine that's something else mm. you know that's when we identify those people i send them over to our physiologists to deal with that because that's what they're trained to deal with. So they get oximetry and we identify how much they desaturate and how much of an issue it is, and then then inform the treatment process from that. And that's not CBTI at all. Mm. They, thinking... they still struggle with their sleep after their apnea is managed, then it's CBTI, but you do the apnea first. A client coming and saying, you know, I never feel rested from my sleep. And maybe they're also you know, quite anxious or, you know, yeah. they've struggled with low mood or something. It could be quite difficult for a lay person like me yeah. uh, to recognize, oh, this could be sleep apnea and I need to refer. Is yeah. there anything I could look out for? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, so the stop bang questionnaire, S-T-O-P-B-A-N-G, um, you get a point for each of the eight questions. So snore, do you snore? Tired, are you tired? Observed, has someone observed you stop breathing in your sleep? P is high blood pressure, B is BMI over 30, A is age over 50, N is a fat neck, so larger than 16 inches around or 42 centimetres around, and G is gender being male. So if you're scoring 0, 1 or 2, you're low risk. If you're scoring 3, 4 or 5, you're moderate risk. And if you're scoring 6, 7 or 8, you're high risk and you need referral to respiratory medicine right now and you should not be driving your car. Oh, that's so amen. interesting and if you've got apnea you need to tell the dvla and you can't drive until your symptoms have been managed for three months and you have to have your um treatment reviewed every three years to maintain your driving license 
at the moment, we've got 330,000 people diagnosed with apnea in the UK. We think it's one and a half million because loads of people have it and they're unaware they've got it. So it's it's a massive issue. Uh, We do quite a bit of work in the logistics industry. Uh, Lorry drivers, 99.9% men. Loughborough University did some research a couple of years ago. 84% of them are overweight. Average age is 53, over 50. 30% have um, high blood pressure. So already, most of them are in the risky range. So we think 42% are at moderate risk. 16% of lorry drivers in the UK are at high risk. Just a few weeks ago, I did some work with the rail industry and they found 15% at high risk using the same process. So drivers are really risk, professional drivers on the rail or on the road, 15, 16%, there's no difference there really. Um, Because they're highly at risk, because they're men, they're overweight, they've got high blood pressure, they're getting older. And you're already ticking a lot of boxes there. So your listeners, you will know someone who has this condition um, and it's very easy to identify and it's very easy to treat. So look out for the stop bang questionnaire. It's on Tinternet. It's on our website. People can download it, go out. You've got six out of eight, seven out of eight, right? Get to the GP or come to us. We can, we can get that. So that, that, that stop bang is a screen. And then we use a a device called an oximeter, which is a small wrist-worn device with a finger cuff that that fits over the end of your finger to measure your blood oxygen levels. And you wear that for one night and it's definitive. You've either got apnea or you haven't. And if you haven't, great. And if you have, right, now we get you treated for it. So they're very easy to identify and treat. It's just raising awareness. There's just ignorance about this condition. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think, um, because I work with a lot of parents and paediatric sleep apnea, is is it, I think it's slightly different in its cause. Um, oh, that's my understanding. Yeah, so there are two types of apnea. There's obstructive and there's central. Um, so central sleep apnea is, is brainstem controlled. So um, your respiratory centres in your brainstem are very close to your sleep centres. And we don't really understand the, the underlying etiology mechanisms of how this works but but something happens when we go into different stages of sleep which just knocks the respiratory center off and then people just stop breathing that's central sleep apnea the only treatment for that is continuous positive airway pressure CPAP the mask now that's much more common in your pediatric mm-hmm. population uh, your lorry drivers big fat overweight men with large necks obstructive sleep apnea and then we can deal with that in a whole range of other different ways you know losing weight having your tonsils taken out having your tongue trimmed your ulvulorhinoplasty procedures to open oropharyngeal volume yeah these are getting more invasive Uh, one of the least is invasive is the is the mad the mandibular advancement device which is like a double gum shield which you sleep you put it in your mouth and it brings your chin forward to open the airway up um and of course, you can use CPAP as well for, for obstructive. So again, you, we, we'd, we'd be diagnosing that in, in the, the stop bang would identify whether someone has apnea or not. The oximetry and the embleta testing will look for, will, be, will then differentially diagnose between obstructive or central. Mm. And that then informs the treatment pathway after that. Yes. And, and one thing, um, my GP told me this, to look out for with paediatric sleep apnea 
is you know if you're seeing a lot of behavioral problems um that you think as a parent are linked to tiredness you know how you get that gut feeling oh, they're just knackered all the time yeah. but they're sleeping they seem to be sleeping um but not not maybe being rested yeah. um then I just think, you know, often we see parents who are at their wits end, they've tried everything, but maybe that's the thing they've not been to the GP about yet. Absolutely. It, it's, it, it needs screening. It needs, it needs assessing, mm. um, investigating. And if it's there, then we can deal with it. But yes, you do, you do see people who've been struggling to get the right, um, right attention, should we say. Absolutely. And there's so much ignorance around this. I mean, honestly, I, I stumbled across that because of, you know, some issues that I had with my daughter. Mm never would have crossed my mind not in a million years sure. uh, I just think I think you're right we need to raise much more awareness about this stuff yeah um, and one of the things that I particularly concerns me in the pediatric domain is um, <laughs> sleep requirement and a lot of people have heard the eight hour thing that you need to get eight hours of sleep and you do meet parents who think that eight hours is enough for their six-year-old and, it, and it's not they kids need more sleep and if and you can take a bunch of healthy happy children deprive them of their sleep and then they start to show you behavioral stuff tiredness problems with memory concentration attention overtired children can become quite hyperactive so actually all of those are core diagnostic criteria for adhd now i think there's an awful lot of kids out there who have a diagnosis of adhd who are just tired because i can take a bunch of kids who are not, who don't have ADHD, make them tired and they start to look like that. You can also take kids with ADHD and get them sleeping better and all those symptoms start to alleviate. So ADHD is a thing, but I think we're misdiagnosing an awful lot of kids with this. We stigmatize them. We give them toxic medication, Ritalin. What kind of medication is Ritalin? It's a stimulant. Hello, stimulants don't get on so well with sleep, by the way. So we're managing... A tired child, we're misdiagnosing them with ADHD, we're giving them a stimulant drug, which makes them more tired, and we stigmatise that person. So I, I, I do a little bit of forensic sleep work, and I've, I've been involved in five sexomnia cases, sexomnia being a parasomnia, where people can engage in sexual activity in their sleep, and if they're asleep when they're doing it, they're not culpable, because it's an insane automatism as we talked about earlier with sleep homicide. So I was asked to go and be an expert witness on a case or a chap who was on remand for sexually assaulting a woman. And he was saying that he was sexomniac and, and I was called in as the expert to go and assess. And, and in that process, I spoke to his mum because you remember Kenneth Parks, he had 22 blood relatives who also had, and, we, and, and childhood sleep problems so we needed to know what his childhood sleep was like so I interviewed mum uh, she was single mum she was struggling in a fairly low socioeconomic area um, low level of education didn't first child was struggling like everybody does with bringing up a child he was difficult she let him stay up late playing computer games in his bedroom. He was sleep deprived. He was at school. He was mucking about. He was getting in trouble. He wasn't performing. He got a diagnosis of ADHD. He took medication for it. He was stigmatized. Don't bother with me. I've got ADHD. He got expelled. He left school. He got in trouble with the law. He sexually assaulted a woman. The witness statements. He, he wasn't a sleepwalker as a child. So he didn't have much parasomnia stuff. He just didn't sleep well. Um, and he, he's, he was... He did not have sleep apnea. He was, he was behaving in a quite a complicated, sophisticated way at the point at which the crimes were committed against this woman. And 
I informed the court that I didn't think that he had sex somebody he's but he's now in prison and so he should be but there's a whole life gone wrong mm -hmm. if we got to mum and gave her some support and got him sleeping well he would have been he could be a high court judge right now I'm not saying that's any better but <laughs> Um, but he'd be, you know, he'd be a tax. He's costing us, I don't know, how much does it cost to keep a guy in, in, in a secure prison? 100 grand a year? Mm. A taxpayer? And he could be out here being a taxpayer and there's a woman out there who's not been raped. Mm. There's a whole life gone wrong because we fail to identify and deal with this stuff at the right time because of a lack of awareness. Now, that's tragic. That's where I don't want to be in 30 years' time. There's, we, if we could have got to her and helped her back then... He, yeah, he could go and be a high court judge right now. So that's just an example of, of how we can get things a bit wrong and then how it can just spiral out of control. Um, yeah, if, and if I think so many of us who do work with parents in that early stage, you know, we're, we're hearing this desperation around sleep all the time. Um, so I imagine there's going to be a lot of people listening to this who are thinking, I've got to get skilled up. I want to get skilled up as fast as possible. So what's the best way to do that then? <laughs> Uh, it, well, it depends what you're looking for in terms of how much skill you want to you want to get. And if you just want to sort of bedtime reading, pardon the pun, then you know that there there are books out there. But I, I would look for books that have been written by people who have experience. There's a lot. There's a lot of there's a lot of so-called sleep experts out there, and we've trained loads of them. They come on a two-day course, and then they go and build themselves a website and say, "Oh, I'm a sleep expert now," because we're an unregulated industry, right? Mm. So there's loads of those people out there. So I would just look for someone who's got some credentials, you know, like Colin Espy and others around, but, but you're looking for CBTI because that's, um, that's what's recommended by NICE. It doesn't recommend anything else. If you've got a sleep problem at the moment, it's CBTI or tablets and that's it. So don't believe the hype. There's a lot of other stuff out there, a lot of aggressive marketing for pills and potions and gizmos and bedding which is based in zero facts, zero science attached to loads of this stuff, just lots of shiny, aggressive marketing. So, so I suppose at a low level, you know, get, by, buying a, a book by say, say Colin Espy, one of his, his more up-to-date books or our, our book, Teaching the World to Sleep, that's the evidence base. It's fully referenced that, you know, so don't believe it if you don't want to go into the reference list and you can find out for yourself. So this is not me. This is what the science is telling us at the moment, which is I've just, pulled it together um or if, if people are interested um you know we do um open courses we do about six a year and um, we used to do them in in person in bristol london birmingham manchester edinburgh newcastle um and we haven't been for a year so they've all been online and they've been working very well actually but um on online you, you know you do lose a bit but at the same time uh, we don't have to faddle around with loads of travel and accommodation and extra costs attached. So we've been able to keep pricing down by doing them online. So in future, what we're going to do is we're going to do four or five online courses a year and one or two in person. So I think we're going to Manchester in, um, in October this year. And then next year we'll go somewhere, we'll go Bristol or London and we'll just dot around the place to do the in-person in-house stuff. If people want that, um, but the online stuff's actually working so well, we, we will stick with that. And then with the, so that's the general two-day open course, but we do other stuff. We, uh, I do training days on brain injury, neuro rehab populations, pediatric populations, um, working with parents and young children. So we've got, we've got other training that we do uh, 
specifically for different health professionals or direct to user. We do a lot of training in organizations direct to employees, shift workers, drivers, white, blue collar workers, um, as well as the health professionals. So there's a lot of stuff. It's all on our website. If people want to come and see the range of offerings that we've got, um, or, or if you're not sure, just pick up the phone, give us a ring and talk about what your interests, concerns, worries might be. And we can say, well, maybe you want to go in that direction or read that book or come on that course, something like that. Um, so, so yeah, more than happy to talk to people about what they might feel that they need. Brilliant. And I'll, I'll link up to all of your contact details in the show notes of this episode. www.sleepunlimited, all one word, .co.uk. Yeah. Brilliant. I'm sure loads of people are going to go over there and check you out. And like I said, all of your contact details will be in the show notes. So you can come over there and have a look. Um, I've taken up so much of your time and I, I'm aware I promised you it'd be shorter than this. Uh, I could talk about this all day and all night. I love it. So no, yeah, I'm more than that. happy to. And if you want to talk about this again or more or dig into different stuff, just, yeah, give me a shout anytime. Fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on today. Thanks, Rosie. No, it's been nice talking to you. Thanks very much. Before you go, I really need your help with something. So over the summer, I'm planning to run some free workshops for you guys so that anyone thinking of starting or growing their practice in September can get a bit of a jump start on it because we're not running any psychology business school courses over the summer. So at the moment, I'm thinking of running two sessions, a a repeat of our Find Your Specialism training, which has got such amazing feedback. And I know that lots of people want us to do that one again and a session called the 50 minute business plan, where I take you through the key components of a useful business plan and help you to start or create or update yours in 50 minutes. I've put a poll on the Do More Than Therapy page on Facebook, and if you could just hop over there and just tap which option would suit you best, that would be really, really helpful. Or you can always add another option in if you prefer, it's not set in stone yet. I just really like your feedback on the training that's going to be the most useful to you guys over the summer. So thank you so much in advance, and I'll see you next week. Where are you at in your practice? Are you just starting out and you're still terrified about not having enough work or not being set up right? Or are you full to the rafters with clients and you're looking for a different way to make an impact on mental health without risking burnout? Either way, come over to psychologybusinessschool.com. We have programs, tools, free resources, podcasts and blogs to help you take your practice to the next level. You don't have to do it on your own. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Business of Psychology podcast. If you share my passion for doing more than therapy, then make sure you come over and join my free Do More Than Therapy Facebook community, where you can work on getting your big ideas off the ground with like-minded psychologists and therapists. I'd also love it if you could leave this show a five-star review wherever you listen to your podcasts. It'll help more of the people who need it to find it. See you next week for more tips and inspirational stories to help you do more than therapy. Therapy.